You're listening to This Motorcycle Life, conversations about why we ride. Episode 50, One Light. I'm Bruce Philp, and thank you for listening. Well, if there's a passion that inspires more creativity than motorcycling does, I can't imagine what it would be. From photography to painting to novels, poetry, film, and even podcasts. For a bunch of supposedly antisocial gearheads, we can't seem to keep quiet about the joy of riding motorbikes. Well, to celebrate this podcast's 50th episode, I thought it might be fun to dig into why that might be. We'll start that digging in a moment. But first, I've got some important acknowledgments to share with you. First of all, I want to thank a couple of listeners who swooped in at the end of last year to top up our support for the Movember Foundation. Big thanks to Gregory Lyons. And to a generous serial donor... Yoop, I don't want to mispronounce your name in this of all moments, so I'm not going to try. But if anyone listening to this podcast happens to find themselves riding in Texas, and you cross paths with a Swiss guy on an immaculate BMW airhead, and I mean, how many could there be, you should stop and shake that man's hand. He's a true friend of this podcast. I also want to say thanks to the first person to find that new support tab at thismotorcyclelife.com. Kelly Birch, I am so glad that this show has been valuable to you, and I really appreciate your help with keeping the lights on. It means a lot. And finally, I want to say congratulations to my daughter, whose first official act as a newly minted resident of Australia was to get her motorcycle license this past weekend. This one's for you, Lizzie. Okay, let's go. So it's this Motorcycle Life's 50th episode. And to top it off, sometime in the next few weeks, we will have surpassed half a million streams. There are motorcycle podcasts out there that have accomplished far bigger things, but I would never have guessed that this one would still have anything to say by now, or anyone left to hear it. It was supposed to be a love letter to motorcycling, and it seems like there was just a lot more to love than I imagined when I was watching all those how-to-be-a-podcaster videos on YouTube. And I've actually heard from several listeners who thought we should mark the occasion. Well, that kind of support is pretty motivating. I know I say that a lot. But it got me thinking about why any of us take something like this on. For every content creator who finds some kind of a living in it, there are hundreds, probably thousands, who churn out their own love letters on their own time for no reason other than to make a permanent record of the lives that motorcycles have given them. Meanwhile, as I record this, all of our phones are unplugged, there's a sign on the front door telling couriers not to ring the bell, and my wife has locked herself in the guest room with the cat for the 50th time. Well, a bit like riding a motorcycle, it doesn't make much sense if you think about it. Which is an irresistible place to start a conversation. To avoid having that conversation with myself, I buttonholed a fellow podcaster. Wes Fleming, the host and producer of Chasing the Horizon. That podcast is among three that Wes runs on behalf of the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, 
They include one hosted by Mark Barnes, who was my guest on the very popular episode 21, Fear Itself. I'm a longtime fan of Chasing the Horizon for the hard work that Wes puts into industry news and for his easygoing interview style. His encouragement for me and for this podcast and his general decent human vibe also made him feel kind of like a friend I just hadn't met yet. Well, I've met him now, and he's all that and more. When we decided to interview each other for this episode, I caught up with Wes at his home in central Virginia for a conversation that's a little less structured than you're used to, but I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hey, Wes, welcome to episode 50. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Bruce. It's nice to be here. Oh, it's, it's really nice to have you um, and and to have your support for this uh, rather experimental experience we're about to have. And so thanks for agreeing to do it. Um, I know you've got a lot going on at home right now, so thanks to your family, too, for making the time that we're going to spend together possible. And and I, I do really appreciate it, so so do pass that on. So I, why don't we get started on your on your show, you often kick off conversations with the people that you interview um, with what you call origin stories, which I love, love that term, um, where you get people to talk about how they began uh, riding bikes or how motorcycles found their way into their lives. And uh, I thought maybe that might be a fun place for us to start. And 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 do you want to go first? <laughs> Sure, I'm happy to go first. Okay. Um, uh, and, and you know, before I start in on on me, I just want to say uh, I'm super excited to be on this show. Um, I've been listening to this motorcycle life for a couple of years now, actually more than a couple of years, because in in a big way, your show was what inspired me to start my show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was it was a combination of things, but um, listening to this motorcycle life and and listening to somebody do the kind of long form journalistic approach to motorcycle podcasting um, made me realize there was a place for motorcycle podcasts that were beyond just people sitting around their garage chatting about what they did on their motorcycles that week. Right. So I want to get that right out and. Uh, and and throw that down so that that's out there hanging in the air and uh, possibly embarrassing you. <laughs> I am blushing a little, um, but thanks for saying that. <laughs> I, I I will have said nice things about you in my introductory comments, so you know don't feel that I'm you know brushing you off. I actually do love your show, um, but it's really really good of you to say that. <laughs> um, yeah. So origin story. Yeah, um, it was it was pretty easy. I, I didn't really grow up around motorcycles. I'm a military brat. Um, my father was in the United States Air Force, and we lived all over the country, all over the U.S., that is, um, and uh, in several places in Europe, in Germany and Belgium. And although I had an uncle who raced motocross, uh, it seemed like he was always getting injured. So... Um, terribly terribly injured the poor guy so motorcycling wasn't really something that stuck with me or impressed on me except for one thing we uh we moved to germany the summer that star wars came out so that gives everybody a little clue as to how old i am Uh, i was i had just turned seven years old and my father picked us up from the airport in frankfurt germany in uh, just a 
POS Mercedes sedan. It was probably the, it was like the, the, you know, the mercury of Mercedes. It was just a piece of junk, um, noisy, cold, you know, <laughs> uh, and we're going down the Autobahn and, uh, everybody of course is going past us at a million miles an hour. It seemed, and I'm just looking out the window at this country that I've never been in and I'm going to be living in for who knows how long at that point. And the coming up beside us was uh, a headlight. And I just kind of watched it through the back window and then come up and get closer and closer. And it was a, a black motorcycle, the person riding it. I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman wearing a black leather jacket, black leather pants, black boots, black helmet, black gloves, and just it feeling as I did trapped in that car <laughs> and trapped in that country and trapped in that life that I had absolutely no input into that guy on the motorcycle. I'm you know, kind of making the, the sexist assumption. It was a man, mm. that person on the motorcycle represented being able to break away from all those things that I felt constrained by even at the young age of seven. Wow. Um, and that kind of stuck with me until through high school. In high school, I got into rock and roll. I'm, I'm a guitar player still to this day. I play in rock bands. Uh, and that kind of took my focus. But as high school was winding down and my high school band was winding down, my friends were going off to college and uh, I wasn't. I couldn't really afford it at the time. Um. We were all hanging out one day before my my one of my best friends went off to college and one of our friend group uh, pulled up on this noisy, smoky Kawasaki. And he said, who wants to get who wants to go for a ride? And I said, well, I'll go for a ride. Uh, do you have a helmet? And he's like, no, I don't I only have one helmet. So we dug around in my friend's basement until we found uh, what I'm sure was a 50-year-old motorcycle helmet, three-quarter, you know, with no bubble. And uh, I figured I'd wear glasses. And back then, the trend was towards larger frames than we we sport these days. So I hopped on the back of the motorcycle, and he took me for a ride. And it was at once the most exhilarating and the most frightening thing I had ever done in my life at that point. Um, we even in where I live in central Virginia, we experience cicada swarms every 17 years. Right. And this was one of those years. And we rode right through a swarm of cicadas. <laughs> and I was covered in cicada goo, uh, the parts of me that stuck out to the side of my friend, because I'm looking out over his shoulder, you know, and it took cicadas right in my face, broke my glasses. Uh, I had to pull a cicada eye. Uh, cicada leg out of my eye at one point and uh my first thought was the next time i do that i need one of those full face helmets on you know it didn't discourage me even though it was really uncomfortable and kind of disgusting um and i developed a, an eye infection from that <laughs> cicada leg uh my very first thought was to go buy a full face helmet so that I could do it again. And I eventually bought that motorcycle from that friend of mine um, and, and learned how to ride on it kind of in my neighborhood. 
I traded the Kawasaki for uh, CB750 that (laughs) was in even worse condition. Um, But I knew somebody who rode a Honda. So I thought, if I have a Honda, then I can get help. Because he worked on his own bike. I wanted to work on my bike. And that's really kind of where it started. I discovered the CB750. And ever since then, except for about a three-year period when my daughter was very young, um, I've been riding riding motorcycles. Um, and for a long time, I've had many periods in my life where I didn't own a car. Um, obviously, not while my my daughter was, was small and needed uh, transportation. Um, but my most recent carless period was just in 20 from late 2021 into almost the summer of, of, uh, 2022. when I, when I didn't own a car and uh, got by on, on borrowing my wife's car and, and using my motorcycle. So for me, it really, it, it really drives back to that day on the Autobahn, not understanding where I was, what my life was going to be like you know, through a swarm of cicadas to motorcycles now almost consuming my entire life. I I work in the motorcycle industry now, Mm. which is not something I ever dreamed I would be able to do. Um, So just the, the arc for me is, is, is really part the big part of the story to go from, you know, wondering what that thing was and, and what did that feel like to, now I, I I and I later I skipped a little part of it. I later figured out just kind of through my hazy memories. Seven year olds don't really have great long term memory, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but I figured out over the years that that motorcycle that I had seen was uh, a, probably a, a at the time only a three or four year old BMW R ninety. So it would have been an R ninety slash six because it was all black right beautiful which has been one of my dreams for 25 years um now it's not on the road yet it's not completely road road legal but uh i own it and i'm working on it and my goal is to get it up and running this spring and uh i hope i really hope that some little kid who's feeling trapped in a car in a life he doesn't understand sees me go past his family's car and experiences the same thing that I did. And that'll just, for me, it'll bring it all full circle. Amazing. That That's a really, it's, it's a good story and it's a, and it's a vivid, uh, it has a vivid beginning, which I admire because you're going to discover in a moment that mine isn't quite that literary. Um, but uh, I, it's, it's legit <laughs> if I can use, if it's okay to use yeah. that word. Um, again, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to match that. Um, but that's awesome. And actually, there's a listener I'm going to acknowledge before we start talking on this episode um, who's in Texas, a Swiss guy who made um, a generous Movember, found, uh, Movember Foundation donation. And I think maybe that R90 is one of his bikes. He's a big Airhead fan. I'm Fantastic. This, this is not great pod, so I'll, I'll move on. But um, that's uh, that's fantastic. Um, you know, mine, so, so my dad rode bikes, um, but he, it wasn't something he kind of brought home with him and he, he liked, um, kind of slightly weird, small Japanese bikes and, um, and, and, uh, so it would be easy to say that that's kind of what got me started. But, you know, the truth is that the only contribution his being a rider made was that he had, when I was a kid, um, 
a Yamaha twin jet. And I don't know if you know that bike, but it's a, it's a strange little, I think you might call it an underbone bike. Um, but it's a hundred CC oil injected two stroke. Um, so it doesn't sound, you know, kind of rumblingly, um, you know, awe-inspiring, but it was actually a pretty sexy looking bike and it stuck in my mind cause I was just a little guy and I thought, um, that was kind of cool. And, and there it, um, there it kind of marinated. But the big thing, quite honestly, was plain old envy. We, I lived in the country, um, and we had um, a, sort of a group of friends who would get into various shenanigans um, that wouldn't be considered safe or responsible today. And, and at one point, one of them um, materialized with a Honda Trail 50. And I, you know, <laughs> the you might remember the you know the Farrah Fawcett poster that kind of made the you know that was kind of made the walls of many young teenagers in the around about the time you were watching Star Wars. Well, to me, yes. that was the effect this Trail Fifty had. Um, it was, I thought, the most exciting and and beautiful thing I had ever seen, and um, it was also out of my reach financially. So I ended up getting a Bronco. Um, which was an Italian brand, uh, but it was a pull start mini bike. I mean, close your eyes, picture mini bike from the seventies, and and you know that's what I had. Um, and you know we had a ball on it, riding around gravel pits and through farmers' fields, and you know in the forest, and again doing things that would not be considered safe or responsible today. Um, and it all came to a thundering halt because, like all country boys, um, if you wanted to get um, a job or you had any hope of dating, you had to have a car. And, um, and so that happened and the next thing you know, life kind of picks up speed and marriage and kids and, you know, divorce and marriage, <laughs> um, and, uh, and life kind of flew by and it wasn't until literally decades later, um, I had been, um, uh, riding horses, um, very unsuccessfully, but I, I really wanted to be a cowboy, I guess. And, um, I had this beautiful, big, um, warm blood named William, who, you know, seemed like we could finally form a partnership. And uh, one thing led to another, he turned out to have a degenerative suspensory ligament problem and, and he eventually had to be put down. And that's mm. a big deal. You know, horses make an impression. And so I, I kind of, that, I, that was it for horses for me. That was it. I felt like this was the wrong mountain to be on. And, um, you know, maybe it was a mercy that, uh, that it had ended the way it, that it did. Um, but in any rate, at any rate, I was in, you know, kind of no mood to, to try again. And so one day I was sitting, um, at a car dealership waiting to get the oil changed in my truck. And I looked across the street and there was, um, a Yamaha dealer and it was kind of raining and it, you know, we'd been, you know, it hadn't been a great year around here. These, you know, these things happen sometimes family, you know, illnesses and all that stuff. And I, I just was kind of feeling the weight of the world and looked across the road and saw this Yamaha dealer and, and just got up and literally left the dealership, walked across the highway, <laughs> walked into the dealership and picked up a brochure for what you guys would call, uh, the MSF course. It's a little bit different here, but it's essentially the same thing. Signed up, mm -hmm. uh, before I even got home. And, you know, three weeks later I was, you know, standing in the rain learning to ride and, and just never look back. Uh, it it hit late, but it hit hard. And uh, um, as I'm sure we'll, we'll get into. So my first bike was a Suzuki Savage, which I bought used from that dealership. And I had for about six months. I don't think I was mature enough to appreciate its charms. 
um, for a, for a, a learning rider, it was a bit like being stuffed into a garbage can and, you know, rolled down a hill. It was just, there was just too much going on under there. <laughs> so it, um, it soon left and, um, and, you know, thereafter began a string of bikes and, uh, and, you know, kind of here we are. So, so really very much a kind of regular person story, dramatically lacking in pathos and excitement. But, uh, well, I love the idea that you, you know, you saw across the street, a motorcycle dealership and something just switched in your brain. That's what I'm going to do. That's the thing that I have to do. And, but, but you still took that slight hesitation and said, maybe I ought to get a little training first. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, is something that's, I've, that's an important step. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's sort of a, essential here to get your license or, or nearly so, but, um, but I, I've, I've remained uh, pretty committed to, you know, to training kind of ever since. Cause the thing about starting as a, you know, as a grown up is you don't necessarily have the, you know, the quick reflexes and the fearlessness that you do when you're, you know, when you're, uh, uh, when you're younger and, um, but the Suzuki yeah. was, was not going to be, um, it was not going to be my, my mentor. <laughs> well, yeah, you're not getting into a huge amount of trouble on a savage. No, <laughs> no, no, that's true. But, uh, yeah, so, was, yeah go ahead. I was going to ask, what are you riding these days? What's your, what's your go-to, you know, to go grab a quarter milk? No, I'm sorry. Liter of milk. <laughs> Liter. <laughs> um, or, uh, or head out for the weekend. Are you a one bike does it all guy or are you a different, different tool for different job rider? Well, I, I do. Um, it, I guess more the second. I have um, the bike that gets the most miles is, uh, is, is my KTM 790 Adventure. I'll, I'll apologize that it's a KTM. And um, you can send me a sympathy card uh, at another time. But um, I actually, I adore that bike. It's very, uh, it's an extremely competent motorcycle and more characterful than I was afraid it was going to be. You might recall when we first uh, contacted each other years ago that I was on a F700 GS and I think you were very polite about yes. that bike's um, lack of personality, but <laughs> the, the KTM was an antidote <laughs> to that for sure. Um, the bike, the, the second one I guess would be, I have a Triumph Scrambler, a, a 2013 Scrambler, which I've made very much my own. Um, I've had it since nearly new. It was essentially the bike that followed the Savage. Um, and, uh, and I just, I, I think I'll probably never sell it. Um, and then I've got a, uh, Kawasaki Ninja 400, which was a purchase inspired by, uh, track days, which over the course of COVID, I sort of built into a sort of street legal track bike. And it's a, just a blast. Uh, it's like a really fun bike for an hour kind of, um, thing. Yeah. And then this past year, um, discretion apparently not being the better part of valor, I I, I bought a a Suzuki uh, DR two hundred SE, which which you know I'll give people a minute to pick themselves up off the floor from laughing because it really is as uh, docile as you think. <laughs> um, but I thought I would hurl myself into the woods and see what that's all about. So so those are my four. I was briefly the custodian of a Vespa GTS three hundred Super, which my wife has adopted and. Uh, and loves very much. And that's kind of what's in the barn besides tractors. 
Yeah. What, uh, what, what inspired the Vespa purchase? Was it, were, were you just uh Vespa curious or was there a reason for it? <laughs> it's a good question. Well, so I had, um, I kind of, I, I reread a few years ago, Ted Bishop's book, Riding with Rilke. I don't know if you've, if you're familiar with it. Um, but it's a great little escapist read, which begins with a, a crash on a Ducati monster, which he then waxes lyrical about. Um, and, uh, and and so I got it in my head that maybe I needed a Ducati monster someday. So when mm. the 797 came out, I, I bought one. We we would go to Toronto uh, pretty regularly, and I would, I would use it as kind of my bike in the city. I thought I would look cool. Um, and, um, you know, it gave me an excuse to have another bike. And at... I was not, Ducati monsters are, are just not um, comfortable bikes for me. It turned out that, that you know, I, I felt like I was sitting on it instead of in it. So, you know, some people, mm-hmm. I think, really love that position. I didn't, but I still thought I looked cool. But the other thing was, holy cow, was that thing hot um, in, you know, in <laughs> urban traffic. Like, just, I felt like I was in one of those Traeger barbecues that, you know, used this as a wood chips there <laughs> it was it was like wrong wrong bike for the job and and not really getting enough use so a friend of mine actually the guy who was the guest on the first episode of this of my podcast said well for the city why don't you try a vespa and instead so i sold the ducati and bought this gts 300 and uh, i would say that it was the perfect tool for getting around a, a busy city. There's no doubt about it. And it, and oh, absolutely remarkably, uh, quick and, and capable machine. Um, but our lives kind of drifted out of Toronto and one thing led to another. And I just, it just, again, wasn't getting enough use. So, um, hence my wife's adoption of it, but I will fiercely defend the, <laughs> I will fiercely defend the credentials of the Vespa. It's an amazing little machine. And, um, as I say, she just adores it. So, so there it is. Yeah, I know. At least in the United States, a lot of a lot of motorcyclists look down on scooter riders, and uh, I admit to being having been one of those people at one point in time. But uh, I made a friend through the long distance community who um, it called me out in an after an episode he listened to in which I I made, cracked a joke about scooters, and uh, I got a, a a fairly strident. Uh, Facebook message from him a couple of days later in which he took me to task over that characterization I made. And so I, I turned it around and I, I said, well, why don't you come on my show then and educate me about scooters? And uh, you know, this is somebody who has ridden a scooter in the uh, iron butt competition. Oh, he wow. has ridden his scooters across the United States, across the continent uh, multiple times, he is as committed a scooter rider as we are motorcycle riders. And uh, after that conversation, I realized, you know, people that ride scooters are every bit as much of a motorcyclist as I am. And it really changed my perspective on scooters. Yeah. Um, and a mentor of mine who unfortunately passed away from cancer as he got uh, a little bit older and uh, the more his cancer progressed, he got weaker. He had to give up his big bike, but he didn't want to give up riding. And so he rode a scooter. And I'll never forget a, a small group ride that we had where he just smoked everybody. We couldn't keep up with him. <laughs> um, 
and he was riding, I want to say it was a Yamaha, I think it was a 650. It's their big, like, uh, business class scooter. I, I don't know the name of it. Right. Um, big for a scooter. <laughs> you know, it wasn't even uh, as tall as a, as a, as the, the smallest motorcycle I can think of. But uh, those two things really woke me up to scooters are, are every bit motorcycles. They just don't have, to, you don't have to shift the gears. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And, and, you know, when someone really wants to haul um, the groceries on one of those things, it's amazing how fast they can go. I don't know if you're familiar with a scooter shop in Austria called, I don't know, it's called SIP or SIP or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. They have an active YouTube channel with um, a lot of people being um, immature on scooters, and it's pretty impressive, especially given that most of them are vintage. Nice. This one, um, I mean, first of all, I, I sort of think that it's, all, in some respects, a separate set of skills because when you're deprived of a clutch and you're deprived of the ability to gear down, you're deprived of engine braking, there are a lot of strategies that just change. Um, so, you know, so there's that. And and the other the other thing is simply that these you know, these bigger ones are, are seriously fast. I mean, I had, I'd, I rode this one up from the city to our farm and many times caught the bewildered look of the drivers of vehicles in front of me in their rearview mirrors <laughs> as they were expecting, yeah. you know, to see, you know, to see me as a dot in the mirror. And we'd be doing, you know, not crazy speeds, but 110 or 120 in, uh, kilometers, that is. And, um, um, and the, the bike was just very comfortable. And anyway, I was, I, I, I wouldn't say I, I was converted in the sense that I don't need one in my life until I do. But when I do, um, I'm not gonna feel bad about it at all. I think they're awesome. Um, what are you riding? Yeah. Obviously a BMW is going to be on this list. What, what, what's, um, what's in your garage? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I told you about my, uh, my early love affair with Honda CB 750s and that stuck until, um, Man, that stuck for a long time, and I love the the Japanese inline fours. I ended up on a Suzuki Bandit uh, when they were still twelve hundred cc's, and I rode one of those all the way across the United States and uh, visited a friend in San Francisco. Uh, we were at a party, and uh, one of his friends got plowed and could not ride his motorcycle home. So they sent the word around: "Hey, we need somebody who can ride a motorcycle and take this guy home." And, uh, you know, he'll pay for a taxi to get back to the party. And I was like, well, I'm sober. Um, I'll, I'll do it. And it was a, uh, a 1995 BMW R1100 GS, which I had never, never seen one in person, never ridden. Um, at that point in my life, I hadn't connected the dots from my childhood. I didn't even know this is so cliche. I didn't even know that BMW made motorcycles. (laughs) Right. Um, and I and I gave this guy a ride back to his house uh, on his motorcycle, and I couldn't. I was I was stunned. It's the first time a motorcycle just knocked me out with its ability to be maneuverable and powerful at the same time, with the wide handlebars and the upright seating position. You know, tall enough but not too tall, and with I'm a I'm a big dude, um, and the guy behind me uh, was no shrinking violet. Um, and when I got home from that trip, um, I decided I was going to find one of those bikes and I set out to find a 1995 BMW R1100. I even got a black one, just like the guy in San Francisco had. (laughs) And, uh, and that was the end of my, my, my inline four life. Uh, I've been BMW since 2001, 
And uh, I still ride a, a GS, which uh, my current version is a, a liquid-cooled R1200 GS. And, uh, you know, I don't ride off-road. I'm not I'm not a, a dual sporter. I don't want to ride around the world. I don't want to traverse Africa in any direction. Um, but I just find it to be such a comfortable and capable touring bike mm. um, without looking like a touring bike. Uh, I, th- I think that uh, the GS is probably one of the ugliest motorcycles out there. But it looks great from the seat. It's got a wonderful cockpit nice wide handlebars you look down and you can see the engine sticking out of the sides with the with the boxer um so my my life ever since 2001 has been a series of bmw boxers which uh which i greatly love a couple of years ago and it's almost become a joke on my show um that i i find a way to work this into almost every conversation with every guest and i didn't even realize i was doing it at first but when I turned uh, 50, the year I turned 50, I bought a uh, a brand new, my first brand new ever motorcycle that I bought was a uh, an Indian FTR 1200S. Oh, wow. And I even got the race replica because, you know, I, at that point I was just completely eaten up with flat track racing and Indian was just killing it on the flat track with their 750cc uh flat track race bike and so i wanted the one that looked like those uh plus in the back of my head i thought well you know if i ever sell this bike the race replica will be the one that people really want that because they are not making very many of them Hmm. uh so i got that in in 2019 and it is such an inappropriate motorcycle for pretty much anybody Uh, (laughs) it has more power than you can possibly imagine but then they pack all this technology in it so it's actually a pretty safe motorcycle to ride you know um and I don't, I don't do wheelies. I don't, you know, back roads, day ride, you know, going here, going there. And, and I do, like you were saying, I, I always feel like I'm sitting on it. Um, but that is part of the charm, you know, no windshield. It, it, it kind of reminds me of when I rode the CB 750s and that just that raw connection with the wind and the road. And there's nothing between, you know, you and your destination, but you know, two tires and a twist grip. Mm. And it, it just evokes so much of my early motorcycling. Uh, and I just love the thing. And, and unfortunately, I'm having some uh, joint issues that are making it much more difficult to ride these days. But I can't I can't give it up. Mm. I, I even have a friend who really wants to buy it. And I, I just can't do it uh, yet. We'll see what happens. Um, and then uh, last when uh, I have to be careful when I say last year, because now it's 2023 in September of 21, I bought, uh, I bought actually bought a black R90 slash six in 1974 um, from an older gentleman who lived not too far from me. We heard about each other kind of through the grapevine. Um, he was looking to sell 94 years old. His wife was finally making him stop riding because he had dropped his Harley and he couldn't pick it up. And she felt that that was enough of a sign that if he was off by himself somewhere and had a problem, he wouldn't be safe. And, and so he sold the Harley, but he loved his R90, his BMW. He'd had it as a 1974. He'd had it since 1978. And, um, He'd outfitted it with a big old windjammer fairing and uh, uh, some kind of a boat horn or something <laughs> on it. 
Um, it was set up. He, he commuted on that bike to work. He told me for 30 years. And, uh, that was the one that he loved. He liked his Harley, but he loved his BMW and it broke his heart to sell it, but he wanted it to go to somebody who would appreciate it. And so he had actually turned down several offers. Um, and he later told me he turned down several offers that were higher than what I offered him for it. So um, I really felt blessed that he he trusted me with his motorcycle. And then I started uh, doing maintenance uh, routines on it and quickly discovered that had he kept riding it, it probably would have killed him. Oh, no. It was it was it was a it was a it was a piece of junk. I mean, it really had deteriorated so far. And it as much as it broke his heart to sell it, it broke my heart to own it because that's not the experience that I, that I wanted. I don't mind working on bikes. I don't even mind working on old bikes. Um, I love working on motorcycles. It's one of the things I do to center myself and experience my own little personal, you know, hole in the universe for, for a few hours a day or, or on the weekend or whatever. Yeah. But this bike needed so much and it needed things that I was incapable of doing. I don't know how to weld. I don't know how to paint. Um, I, I just, it was, it was going to be beyond my capacity to get it even just safe to ride. So, um, I finally made the decision to sell it and not two days later, I'm, I'm not kidding, Bruce, not two days later, I was talking to a friend of mine that I used to play in a band with and I, and he kind of, at the end of the conversation, I could tell he wanted to say something else, um, and I said, yeah, so, you know, what else is going on? And and you, you doing any riding lately? Because I know, know he rides. And uh, he said, you know, I wondered if you were still interested in my R90. <laughs> and uh, I said, yes, absolutely. Consider it sold. What do you want for it? I didn't even negotiate with him. I, I'm just the worst buyer. <laughs> and uh, and that turned into, um, you know, I, I, I tried to send him a check. He's like, no, we're buds. Don't worry about it. I trust you. Just come get it when you can. Uh, the only thing is, is, you know, I live almost all the way to the East coast and he lives in Phoenix, Arizona. So (laughs) it, uh, going out to get it in May of last year was a big adventure. And, uh, I brought it back home in a pickup truck and in Dallas, just outside of Dallas, Texas, I drove through a massive thunderstorm was literally the first time in its life that that bike had been in the rain. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I'm already... Uh, its first owner is probably rolling in his grave somewhere, but, uh, that bike is now in the shop and the only, it needs really, really minor things. It needs a battery. It needs a starter. Um, it needs uh, a suspension that sprung for my size and weight and, uh, you know, uh, just a, a maintenance. It, it needs all the stuff that I'm really good at when it comes to motorcycles and it'll be, it'll be roadworthy again, tires, tubes, brake pads. And uh, and it'll be it'll be on the road. So that's a a 1975 R90 slash six in the uh, not as often seen off white kind of eggshell uh, paint scheme rather than black. So it's uh, it's not the bike that inspired me, but it's prettier, I think. Yeah. Wow. That must be a long run. So. Yeah, it really is. I'll 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 send you a picture um, because it's just a lovely motorcycle, and I'm really looking forward to. Um, I've got some some uh, family care issues. I'm caring for a, a family member who's um, temporarily partially disabled, 
And uh, once I've got her squared away and she's farther on the road to recovery and able to return to work, I plan to spend some significant time in the shop getting that bike ready for the summer Um, because I've got uh, um, it it hadn't had. I don't know if you mentioned it in the in the intro, but uh, I work for the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America. And every year we have a massive rally somewhere in the country. Uh, We even had one in Canada once upon a time, but uh, the cross border logistics are a little tough these days. Mm -hmm. So they haven't done that in in a decade or more. But um the rally in 2023 is taking place 12 miles from my house. Oh, so I have to, I have to ride this bike because it's a 2023 is also the 100th year, 100th anniversary of BMW's first production motorcycle. Oh, wow. So this is the year to ride a vintage BMW and uh, I'm going to ride that bike to the rally. So, so I'm, I'm so excited about getting that bike back on the road and, and, honoring its previous owners you know my my friend john that i got it from knew the previous owner and that previous owner knew the original owner and john even met the original owner before that gentleman passed away so there's a real pedigree behind this bike and uh, i want to get it back on the road um just to honor those folks who loved that bike so much and uh, then i can develop my relationship with it as well yeah Wow, you sound excited. <laughs> I think this is going to happen. I really am. <laughs> I really am. It's it's. I'm super excited about it. You know, I I want to I want to check a couple of boxes. Um, first of all, I think it takes a lot of nerve for a BMW rider to tell a K- a KTM rider that he thinks his BMW is ugly because. <laughs> do I ha- even have to finish that sentence? Um, and and the other thing I wanted to say was I I get it. I rode I rented an R9T. I realize it's a vastly different motorcycle, but in in the sense that it shares the same kind of motor and the you know um, shaft drive. I rented one in California a couple of years ago and and uh, was thoroughly charmed. Um, I think I would have had a GS in the driveway if it wasn't. For such a costly proposition in this country. Um, you know, that's embarrassing to say, but I, um, I, I, I was like, okay, I get it. (laughs) I get it now. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's, you know, really that's, yeah, the sound, the feel, the, even when you twist the the throttle, you can feel it kind of judder back and forth just a little bit. Um, and you know what, what you said about them being so expensive, I think that's the biggest hurdle to BMW ownership. Uh, but I'm, see, I'm cheap, Bruce, and I have never owned a new BMW. As a matter of fact, I buy BMWs that other people are tired of fixing <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, get them back on the road. So I'm always searching for a deal and uh, searching for for a dog, really. Um, and uh, I've managed to, to maintain that even up through my current bike, which is a 2015. Uh, you know, I, I bought that used. It showed up on a on a truck. Um, from the other side of the country because I just sniffed the deal out and found the right deal. Uh, and I, I say that kind of partly, hopefully, to inspire you into, uh, you know, maybe maybe looking at Canada's version of Cycle Trader and uh, just keeping your eye out for for one of those uh, GSs that somebody's uh, looking to unload cheap. <laughs> that, well, it, you know, it's not impossible. Um, you know, the, the complications are that the nearest dealer is a, a, a fair hike away Um and I have a gift for taking a hundred dollar problem and turning it into a thousand dollar solution. So I, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't choose a bike that needed my hands on it too often. <laughs> 
but uh, I do, they yeah. always turn my head, um, you know, every time I see one. And, and you know, as we discussed earlier, the F700 just didn't scratch that itch. I think the opposed twin is the soul of that brand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the K bikes, um, the, those are the, the, they started out pancake, you know, flat, yep. flat fours and threes and fours. And now they've moved on to inline sixes. Those are amazing bikes packed with technology. They're wonderful, but they're not boxers. The uh, parallel twins, like the one you rode, the F800 that you rode, uh, those engines are as bulletproof as an engine can be, you know, provided you you change the oil. And I actually call those those parallel twins, I, I call them, you know, Japanese level reliability. Those yep. engines are just amazing, but they're not boxers. Uh, they don't have that same soul to them. They don't have that same panache almost and pardon me for somebody who might even partially speak french to uh, mutilate that word and use the american pronunciation <laughs> i think it's perfect i think you used it i think you used it perfectly um yeah no I, I i feel the same i feel the same way i mean that rotax parallel twin was um you know it's it's only crime was um was being you know introverted uh, basically but i have a friend who has an f800 gs that has literally been everywhere you can go on this continent or at least in canada um you know and and challenge a bike and uh and it still like it runs like new he looks at it every spring and says i wonder if i should get something new and then he kind of realizes that this bike is perfect and is likely to go for three hundred thousand miles <laughs> so you know yeah. the poor bmw um so so that's interesting so you um I'm, I'm sort of laying out the timeline in my head here at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a podcaster how does that fit into the story well, um, I've, I've worked in IT in one respect or another since about 1997. Um, and I started as a, a, a call center tech support agent, you know, um, and and kind of worked my way up through that. I've always been into a little bit into technology and just cool stuff. And I kind of discovered podcasts in about 2015 uh, and I mostly listened to um, podcasts that were were what we would consider hard journalism, business news, economics news, um, things that were going on in the in the political world, um, American politics, uh, European politics, which uh, I still have an affinity for. Um, you know, things that are going on that uh, in places like um, you know China and India and. Um, you know, North Africa, Egypt, the Middle East that affect the rest of our lives in ways that aren't always completely obvious. And so I just really kind of went down that rabbit hole and I listened to eight or 10 different podcasts. And one day I just kind of went, does anybody do a motorcycle podcast? Is that a thing? <laughs> and so I started, I started searching and I found uh, just a a, a, an alarming number of motorcycle podcasts. And I started listening to um, all of the ones that seemed like they would appeal to me, um, whether they were, some were hosted by men, some were hosted by women, some were from America, some were from Canada, some were from, uh, you know, Australia. Um, I listened to the MotoGP podcast, even though I didn't really, uh, I've never been a big MotoGP fan, but to just hear these guys um, talk in various 
European Eng- English accents uh, about racing um, just fascinated me, and I loved listening to them. And then I I realized that there wasn't anybody doing the kind of podcast that I really liked, which was those news-related podcasts about motorcycles. Uh, People might talk about a new bike here and there or something that happened at Harley-Davidson or BMW or KTM, but nobody was really getting into the news about the motorcycle industry and nobody was talking to people in the industry. Uh, They might have a guest, but it was, you know, uh, somebody who was more um, culture related, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a, as a, because of my background as a musician and all, I've done a lot of work recording bands, including my own bands. I've produced several albums for both my own bands and some other bands for people that I knew. I was 0% intimidated by the actual production of a podcast. I know how to record voice. I know how to, to mix and create uh, a finished product um, that sounds pleasant to the ear for the most part. And so where I think the the hitch for a lot of people is how do I record a podcast? I wasn't even concerned about that at all. Um, and I thought after looking for a podcast like the one I wanted to listen to for a year and being frustrated and listening to dozens of motorcycle podcasts and not being completely satisfied, um, I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. I got the time. I I had a very small amount of equipment. I didn't need to buy anything to do it. I had everything I needed. Um, And so I just started doing a podcast. And now the one thing that, that helped me was because I, I am uh, because I work for the BMW MOA, I have access to a lot of industry people. So we had our rally in Salt Lake city in 2017 And I just reached out to people who I had previously communicated with for this, that, or the other uh, to get information for a story, to clarify something in a press release, to, um, you know, get product for uh, a review, just a number of people. And I said, hey, listen, I'm thinking about starting a podcast about the motorcycle industry. Would uh, you take an hour out of your weekend when you're at the MOA rally and sit with me in an air conditioned room and talk about your company. And, uh, everybody that I asked said, I would absolutely do that. And I think I had 10 or 12 people sit down with me that weekend. And so I came home with all these interviews and then, um, I didn't have to scramble for interviews. So it was, I don't want to say it was easy to put together my first 10 episodes, but it was, I think, easier than a lot of people that jump into it, not knowing what to expect because I didn't have to scramble for another interview. Um, And so it, 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 the first 10 episodes turned into 15, turned into 25, turned into 50. And I realized that I'd kind of created a monster in my own life but I liked it. <laughs> I, I really, I really love being able to explore this aspect of technology in communication and motorcycles and journalism all at the same time. And it really, 
I, I feel like it's it sounds so cliche, Bruce, but I really feel like I've been preparing to be a podcaster my whole life <laughs> wow. because of my my past interviews. I've I've always been involved in journalism at some level at high school, college, even after. Um, I, I always had my finger in the local paper as a freelance photojournalist, um, you know, kind of just kind of existing in that sphere. And I love to write. I love to research. I love to investigate. I love to figure out and analyze and, and do all of the things that I think a good journalist does. Um, and so when I started my show in 2017, I was able to kind of combine all of those things with a little bit of of um, recording skill and a little bit of uh, audio acumen and, you know, create a show. And uh, luckily it caught on and, uh, you know, a lot of people listen to the show and, uh, you know, I'm I'm over 150 episodes now. I don't re- release as as regularly as I used to uh, because, you know, as I continue to, to work, my responsibilities grow. Um, and where I barely thought I'd be able to manage one podcast, now I run three. Uh, so it just, it turns into a snowball. It's yeah. one of those things, you know, never, never show your boss what you're good at because then he's going to want you to do more of it. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, yeah. that's it. well. So that tracks. I, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I I I would be really interested in hearing about yours, your kind of introduction to podcasting as well, because you know I I just I I really love the long form storytelling in kind of more investigative format of this motorcycle life, and you know that's that's what inspired me after listening to one of your episodes just to reach out, send an email, say hey. That episode really spoke to me uh, because it did. I, I just, I just, I like that format. And, and out of all of the motorcycle podcasts that I listened to in the the two years before I started mine, you know, yours is the one that has continued to stick with me. Um, and I listen to every episode, whereas the others I kind of dabble and I dip in and out. Um, usually after I get an email from them, from somebody who asked me a question about something, I'm like, oh man, I'm behind on that podcast. Right. And I go catch up really quick, but I, I, I never have to catch up with yours. Um, as a matter of fact, you, you took a little bit of a break and uh, I had missed the announcement that you were taking a break. And, and I remember sending you an email going, Hey Bruce, is everything cool, man? You haven't put an episode out in a while. <laughs> you know, I heard, I, I so appreciated that. And I heard from a few people about it and I, I, I felt pretty terrible um, that, you know, I, I mean, I didn't release a, a, a recorded announcement of it. I wrote something on my website, but um, beyond that, nothing. And uh, people were so, um, maybe this is something we can get into a bit later is the the role that listeners play in all this, because people were just so kind and concerned. And I felt like a real heal about it. The So I think... Your story tracks perfectly, and it explains why explains what I like about your podcast, which is the, the 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 fact that it deals with news, but not only that, it does it in a way that that shows real care about the industry. I'm a bit up to here with you know cynicism, <laughs> including about yeah. you know, commerce and and uh, and I really appreciate the the thoughtful and and kind of even handed approach you take to you know kind of reporting on on how the industry we love so much, if we admit it, if we care to admit it, 
um, is doing. I so the the idea of, of doing uh, this motorcycle life was was originally proposed by my wife, who was kind of like, "Why don't you do a podcast?" Um, and that that may have been an expression of you know of. <laughs> She might have just wanted to find something for me to do. Um, that, you know, I, I'm not <laughs> Give sure. him a hobby. He'll leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, because golf had never really caught on. Um, and I had, I guess, a sort of similar convergence to you, um, not uh, in terms of the expertise and, and um, you know, having the, 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 the gear and everything, but, but a little bit that I liked the idea of having the gear. I mean, I was you know, two grand into Amazon, uh, within a week of her making that suggestion. Um, cause I just like that stuff. Um, I, I, I am also, um, a guitarist, but I, I'm pretty sure not at your level. Um, so the idea of having my own mixer and stuff and having a, you know, a legitimate reason to do that. I mean, I use a, a sure SM 58 is my, that's my podcasting mic, right? That's a stage mic. <laughs> yeah. So it tells you something. Um, but uh, the second thing I think was that, you know, lifelong motorcyclists, I don't think, have this experience necessarily. But people who take it up um, a little bit later in life, uh, I think, reach a point where they start to master it. And they are so filled with joy and amazement at what, at, at, you know, what the universe has brought them. <laughs> you know, the, the, the amazing experience of, of kind of piloting, you know, this gyroscope, this collection of gyroscopes down the road and... and um, and finally seeing the insight in Persig's, you know, words about the sense of presence being overwhelming. And, and so they look for opportunities to express it, right? And so you get people who become photographers. I have, um, uh, I received a book from a listener who wrote Motorcycle Haikus. Um, and of course, there's any number of books about it. And, and um, I can name three people who paint pictures of motorcycles, <laughs> like three that I can nice. name. Um, you know, so, so it, there is this kind of... Um, inspirational quality and that and that very much was the moment that I was at and then the third thing and this is going to seem uh, kind of like weird um, inside baseball but you you mentioned earlier that you looked at my profile on LinkedIn so you probably know that I spent um, you know my whole career in, in marketing and um, and quite a bit of that working for ad agencies you know back in the in the day when that was still fun and my job there was kind of um, creative slash strategic. And, you know, without kind of getting all nerdy about it, the heart of the job was basically to find something heroic um, in ordinary people. Because if I can if I can find the thing inside you that's heroic and, 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 and use it to make you buy a Toyota, <laughs> you know, we both win, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, that, yeah. those are the best creative strategies. And so you, you end up kind of getting... Um, very addicted to the idea of looking for the, you know, looking for, for, for great stories and looking for, you know, character in people. And I sort of miss that, the, you know, the industry changed as, as industries do, but um, the idea of, um, of kind of spending my time finding heroic stories in, you know, mostly uh, kind of regular folks, although I've been lucky enough to get a few that weren't so regular was super appealing to me. And, um, and so, you know, the, the, the podcast was, you know, was kind of born and, um, and the, the thing that has astonished me is the appetite people have for that. And that's really what keeps me going. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, it's those heroic stories from what are largely 
regular people that I think drew me to your show because everybody has their everybody has their own reason for riding a motorcycle. Everybody has an, their own reason for doing the things that they do with or on their motorcycle. Hmm. And to learn about the breadth of those experiences while still feeling connected to them really helps me recognize that I'm not alone. You know, I, I tend to ride mostly by myself, um, including, you know, last year, no, Latin last year, 2021, I rode from Virginia to Montana, uh, largely by myself. I rode for a couple of days with a friend who lives in Pennsylvania. We met up in Ohio and rode to Wisconsin and, and I rode the rest of the way myself. I rode all the way home by myself. Um, the first time I ever crossed the continent on a motorcycle by myself, uh, I spent a lot of time in the days before communication systems singing to myself inside my helmet. <laughs> uh, you know, luckily I, I can carry a tune, um, but uh, so I, I'm not offending myself with my uh, atonality, but <laughs> but just hearing the commonalities that I have with some of your guests, but then also recognizing that there's so much more going on in the world of motorcycling that I never considered or never thought about or never experienced. You had a, a guest who lost his spouse to a motorcycle crash. And that episode touched me extremely deeply because um, I was involved in a serious motorcycle crash. And while I wasn't in danger of losing my life, I very well could have been. Uh, and I know friends and acquaintances who have lost their lives while riding motorcycles. Sometimes it's their fault. Sometimes it's not, but every time it happens, it's a tragedy. And listening to that episode brought up all those emotions and also brought up a lot of happy emotions and memories where I could kind of relive meeting those people, having meals with them, even riding from here to there with them. And that kind of experience in life, I think, happens so infrequently that when we find a venue that allows us to experience it, we really have to continue to explore it. Yep. And that that depth is something that, and, and I'm not criticizing anybody else's show. I know that, you know, podcasting is not the easiest thing in the world to continue doing. Mm. Um, I read a statistic once that said most podcasts die in, in fewer than 10 episodes. So just the fact that you've reached 50 episodes, you've beat the odds. And even if you never do another show, there is so much depth to what has gone on in this motorcycle life already that it, it was a worthy endeavor and I, I really, truly believe it's something you can look back on and be proud of someday when it's behind you. <laughs> right. Um, I've, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me while I <clears throat> clear my throat and compose myself. Um, <laughs> thank you um, for saying that. I, I mean, I, mean <laughs> I, I certainly didn't get into this looking for legacy. I don't think any of us does. But um, 
You know, you mentioned that episode um, and I was kind of thinking before we talked, you know, what if Wes wants to know, you know, what is the most memorable episode? I, I, I would I would refuse to answer the question favorite guest, but most memorable. It's got to be that guy. Um, he was um, <clears throat> he he it was a terrible thing that happened. But the, the thrust of the episode was that he wanted to keep riding. Yeah, and the the he insisted that we do the interview in person. It's the only one I've ever done in person. He came to the farm, and we did it in my barn. Um, I'll tell you, it just it just killed me. I can you know, like I'm getting emotional now just thinking about it. And you know, his love for this um, was so genuine and so heartfelt, and the things that he gets out of it still, after all he's been through, are still so significant that. You know, I, I figured I could drop the mic right there. If if all this project does is is let us look at this guy giving us permission um, to experience the, you know, <clears throat> the magic of these things, and and I hope I'm not you know losing people with my romanticism. Um, that would be a good <laughs> day's work all by itself. He was just an incredible, just an it was an incredible conversation. I I was I was a mess watching him go down the driveway afterwards. Yeah, did did he show up on a motorcycle for the interview? Uh, sort of. It was um, a Yamaha uh, Nikon. <laughs> hey, that's like I said, that's a motorcycle. <laughs> well, we, we had a funny, funny conversation about it afterwards because I had you know somewhere buried in the website I'd said I love every motorcycle ever made except the Yamaha Nikon. He persuaded me that it too deserves love, and he has tracked his. Um, and, uh, and, and just been a hooligan on it. And it's actually, when you see one in the flesh, um, it's hard not to be impressed. Um, they're pretty yeah. remarkable accomplishments of engineering. Um, but, um, yeah. So yeah. Omar well, so instead of asking you who is your favorite guest, I, I get that question sometimes too. And I have, I have diff- difficulty with it. What, what is your favorite kind of guest you know after after 50 episodes um you know you've talked to a a wide variety of people so who do you think are are the the your kind of your guests that you kind of most enjoyed interviewing yeah that's a good question um i think it's I think there's an in there's an inverse proportion there's an inverse proportionality to how um kind of anonymous they are and um how satisfying the conversation is if that makes sense. So so Absolutely. You know, I I I've, I've interviewed a few people who, you know, are in, you know, in quotes famous and and they have always been gracious and interesting. I've usually not felt as though I, you know, measured up to the chance I've been given, um honestly, in the case of, you know, people like Freddie Spencer, but when I'm talking to somebody who did not expect to be on a podcast, um who whose lives were changed by motorcycles, but who, um, you know, but but who thought that would forever remain their secret? Um, it it is it is so rewarding, and they just feel um, they feel great to to be seen. If that makes sense, um, I've had yeah. some really great thank you notes from guests afterwards. Um, if you can imagine, so it's that it's the you know, it's the, it's the, it's the regular, it's the regular people, um, you know, again, in heavy quotation marks, I don't, you know, what the boundaries of propriety are with words like that, but people like you and me, um, as opposed to, you know, the industry's stars, 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and you know what, what's interesting is they're the ones that get the most listens. Yeah. I think there's a connection there between, you know, um, uh, those of us who ourselves feel anonymous and those of us who we would never encounter in our normal lives or even, you know, in a, in a, in a special event kind of thing. You know, if we were to travel to a, a motorcycle show or a trade show or a, a rally or something like that, we still might never come across that person in the crowd. Yeah, And I, I think that that connection through the passion of motorcycling is is such a powerful thing. And, and what would your answer to that question be? Is is there a, is there a kind of guest or a <laughs> or, or you can answer either one that or the memorable question either either is acceptable. What's uh, how do you look back on your opus? Yeah, I have a, a kind of a, a a jokey standard answer when people asks me ask me that question, but it's actually it's actually really serious. My favorite kind of guest is one who talks. Um. Uh, my my show is uh, is unscripted essentially for the conversation part. Obviously, my news portion is is scripted uh, because I would forget some of the statistics that I have to spout in a news story. Um, but my conversations, I I I do a little bit of background research, but not. I don't go in depth because I don't want to spoil myself. Um, I want to hear their story fresh so that it can inspire additional follow-up questions. Mm. So my favorite kind of guest is one who is willing to talk about themselves. Not everybody really is. Um, and I've had some some tough interviews that uh, where I really felt like I had to drag information out of my guest. Um, and now, luckily, it doesn't usually come across like that. Um, typically because of the magic of editing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. um, but, uh, when I can ask a very simple leading question of a guest and they talk for eight to 10 minutes, it not only gives me an opportunity to hear their story and to hear their, their passion come through, but I'm learning about them and I'm j- taking notes and jotting down follow-up questions that sometimes, you know, had I done a bunch of research on them and really gotten in depth into their life, I I never would have considered asking that question. Um, and and some of those conversations take a completely tangential direction from where I wanted it to go when I initially conceived of interviewing that person. So those are those are really my favorite guests are the ones who 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 are willing to and able to talk easily about themselves. That's interesting. I so I was going to ask you earlier, you know, whether you thought being a a, a musician helped, you know, helped you avoid self consciousness, you know, in your role as a podcaster. And and now I'm kind of mm-hmm. wondering the same thing about what you, the process you just described, because you know, quite honestly, I am terrified to wing it like that. I I I I do tons of research beforehand, and my questions are mostly prepared. I'll make changes on the fly, depending on. Um, you know, how the the conversation goes or, or frankly, how they answer the question. I mean, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes the progression of questions will be so obvious that I will ask the first one and they'll answer the first three and that's, yeah. that, that's on me. Um, but, you know, I have, you know, I'm self-conscious about that stuff and you seem um, at ease. Do you think there's a, do you think there's a connection there with, 
you know, your experience kind of on stage? Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of that to it. Um, when I first started playing guitar as a, a 14 or 15 year old, very self-conscious, very shy kid, um, uh, you know, I, I was lucky to meet a classmate a year younger than me, schoolmate, I guess would be a better description. We never had any classes together um, who wanted to start a band and he knew he knew five chords and I knew three and we started a band and he taught me his two chords and I taught him the one that I knew that he didn't. <laughs> and we wrote a song that night. Um, it was not a great song. As a matter of fact, if I remember, it was uh, about his love for a particular sandwich from a, uh, a, a golden uh, fast food chain, if I might be circumspect about it. <laughs> um it was, it was not, you know, it's not, it was not our stairway to heaven or carry on wayward son, but it was, it was a connection and we started playing together. Um, and then, you know, every band wants to play out. You want to play in front of people. You want other people to enjoy you, what you enjoy about your music. And at the beginning, um, when it came to a complicated part, what was complicated for me anyways, at a, as a young musician, I would have to turn my back to the audience because I would be so embarrassed to possibly screw up that if I blew it, I didn't want anybody to see the look on my face. Right. Um, you know, and fast forward, you know, through the rest of high school and college and graduate school and spending literally two years talking to people on the telephone, walking them through their computer problems and fixing them um, and explaining to to them exactly why the service was down and this and having to to kind of come up with answers on the fly. Um, after I attained my uh, I have an advanced degree in history and I always wanted to be a teacher. So I started teaching at community college, which is uh, if you're not familiar with the concept of community college, it's almost like a junior college, but it's close to home uh, for for everybody. And they service the, the communities that they're located in. Right. Um, and so I started teaching lecture sections. And I think at that point, my experience as a musician helped me not be shy in front of my class. And then, you know, a dozen or more years of teaching two, three, five lecture classes a week per semester, three semesters a year, you know, spring, summer, and fall. I have no stage fright at this point. And now when I play with my band, um, you know, the lights are in your face and the music is loud, the drummer's behind you, and I just step to the front of the stage and I play my solo. And if I nail it, it's even better. But if I clam it, man, I don't care because it's over and it's behind me and I can hit the next chord coming out of the bridge and it's all big and powerful again. Um, and so I think that that progression from musician to professor has has steered me towards that place where I, I'll just talk to anybody, you know, and I want to find out what makes them tick and what drives them and why they're standing in front of me at that moment. Um, and I'll ask those questions. And I'm uh, part of it is just having very little shame. No, you know, I'm I'm not afraid to to say something inappropriate or ask a question that other people might not ask. Um, and I've had some guests who said afterwards, after the recording is is over, they'll say, you know, 
I, I, nobody has ever asked me that question before and I wasn't sure how to respond. I hope, I hope I didn't, uh, embarrass myself. And I always say the same thing. You never embarrass yourself when you're honest. And as long as you're, you're saying you're speaking from the heart, you're, you're good, you know? And, uh, I kind of approached that the whole concept of talking to people that way. And sometimes I put my foot in my mouth. I embarrassed myself tremendously, with Clement Salvadori, who I I tracked for a year to get his contact information and get an introduction to him, so I wasn't cold coming in. Um, I, I just a, a, a motorcycle journalist who I respect tremendously, um, and I forgot to look at his website before I interviewed him. No, oh, no. Yeah, and I asked him a question uh, that would have been easily answered had I looked at his website and he talked to me like I afterwards, I recognized the tone of voice he used. It's how I talk to my freshmen who don't understand why they're failing a class because they never show up. (laughs) And he used that tone of voice with me. And uh, in the moment I was absolutely humiliated and I vowed that that would never happen again. Um, Which is why I was looking at your website 20 minutes before we got on the zoom together. (laughs) Oh, that's, that is enviable. Um, I must say, I think I saw a picture of you on Instagram recently playing a, what looked like maybe it was a Fender Mustang. And I thought, um, that's like the linen suit of guitars. Like it is, it just takes a certain kind of man to look comfortable playing one of those things. Yeah, that was, that that was my, uh, my seafoam green sparkle jazz master. Okay. (laughs) That was close. It's a, it's an abs. Yeah. It's a, it's an offset. That's a style of guitar and a Mustang is absolutely an offset guitar. So, uh, uh, you know, very similar in, in look, and I just, I just love that thing. That that picture that you saw was from the very first show I played it at. Um, I've I've had it for uh, almost a year, and I was just waiting for the right show to break it out at with a good sound system, a good crowd, and uh, to be perfectly honest, in a in a decent neighborhood at a venue where I wasn't worried about it getting stolen. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> even even at my uh, at my age, we still play some pretty sketchy bars. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just that, that, and there's, there, thinking about that, you know, Bruce, that you mentioned it 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I never would have played a guitar like that on stage because I was so self-conscious. Everything I used to play when I was younger, and I've seen pictures of myself, was black, white, red, blue, primary colors, easy, simple colors, fade into the background, nondescript, e- you know, easy to see it and forget it. And, you know, now I play guitars on stage that are seafoam green sparkle or Rickenbackers. And you see so few Rickenbackers out there nowadays that you remember those people. Um, You know, even my amplifier, my primary amplifier that I use for shows has seafoam green Tolex on it. And it just stands out. (laughs) And, uh, you know, a while ago, I would have been super uncomfortable with that. But, you know, the flip side is I think podcasting has helped me reach that place because when I go to events, especially MOA events, um, people recognize me, not just because um, I write for the organization's magazine and, you know, my picture is there sometimes in my, in my columns, but I have, I've had more people come up to me and go, I recognize your voice. You're the podcast guy, aren't you? And I say, 
yes, yes, I am. Um, and and so I I almost feel emboldened by knowing that people recognize recognize me in one fashion or another, and that has kind of encouraged me to in, embrace some some things that I probably wouldn't have in my younger days when I wanted to be a little bit more anonymous. Right, right. That's interesting. I was going to ask you actually whether you thought the experience of of podcasting had in any way changed your relationship with um, you know, with motorcycling and with and with the community. It sounds like maybe the answer to that is yes. And is there anything? Do you want to expand on that? Is has um, is this? Yeah, a, it, yeah, yeah. There and it's and it's not all positive to tell you that to be perfectly honest. Um, in addition to to podcasting, I also make um, videos, primarily tech videos and review videos that that go up on the MOA YouTube channel. There's that was, I believe, in the industry they call that a plug, um, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, so for the last couple of years, maybe three years since the since the the close of the really intense phase of the pandemic lockdowns. Um, so certainly 2021, most of 2021 and, and all of 2022, every time I get on the motorcycle, I feel a tremendous amount of pressure to produce content. Even if all I'm doing is going to the drugstore to pick up Tylenol. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually struggling with that. And, and I'm not, uh, I'm not so proud that I can't tell you, um, that I'm actually talking to a therapist about some of these feelings because in addition to all the other things going on in my life, I never want to get to the place where I hate this job. I've had too many jobs that, that dragged on my psyche, that damaged my mental health, that made me a sour, surly, difficult to live with person. And I never want that to happen with motorcycles because I love motorcycles so much. I love motorcycle people so much that I never want to look at a motorcycle and think if I ride that, I have to produce content about it. Mm. If I talk to this person, then I have to get two ideas for stories out of that conversation or I've failed. Um, so in, in one respect, you know, I've, I've, recognize that I put a lot of pressure on myself as part of this, this evolution that I've gone through, you know, musician to podcaster kind of thing. Um, and I sometimes forget that, that joy in just sitting down and playing the guitar, you know, that, that I, I try to remember that. And in a lot of ways, it reminds me of the joy that I felt when I first started riding a motorcycle, when I used to get out of work and I, I knew it was going to take me an hour to get home and I didn't care. I wasn't in a rush. The roads were clear because it was well after rush hour. And, you know, the, the air was summertime and it was warm and I could just enjoy the ride and even take the long way. Um, and a lot of times these days, I feel like if my conversation, if my email, if my Instagram isn't producing content or leading to the production of content, then I'm somehow failing in my responsibility, not just to my 
job. Um, but to the people who listen to the show and the people who watch the videos and the people who read the columns, I just had a moment of, you know, existential terror today when I realized, you know, because of my responsibilities right now, caring for my family member, um, I'm going to miss the deadline for the March issue and I'm not going to have a column in the March issue. And I'm okay with that mm. because there's a really good reason for it. Uh, my time is um, splintered right now and I cannot focus on writing a tech column for the March issue. And there's going to be two pages full of somebody else's writing. Um and I expect that by the time the next deadline rolls around, I'll be fine again. Mm. And, you know, it's it's honestly, it's therapy that helps me get to that place because um, I found uh, after some trial and error, I found an excellent therapist who I uh, connected with um, and has really done a lot for my mental health. And I, I, don't, I apologize if I'm uh, making anybody uncomfortable by talking about mental health. I know it's something that that and lead to uncomfortable conversations. Mm. But just like, you know, we spoke very early in our conversation tonight about the importance of motorcycle training, about your emphasis on motorcycle training, I've come to realize that at this point in my life that, you know, mental health is so critically important to being happy and productive and content in all aspects of your life. Um, and so it's really become a priority for me. And, and to that end, I've, I've almost become, um, a little bit of a, of a proselytizer for, for, for getting help if people need help. Yeah. Um, and, and because it, it works, it's worked for me. Um, and, and I'm not a particularly complex or deep person. Um, and I figure if, if, you know, if my dumbass can benefit from something, imagine <laughs> how many other people who are, you know, smarter and quicker and cleverer and more together than I am. Think about how they could benefit from it, could make them even better uh, in their lives. Yeah. And 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 I just uh, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Um, you know, it, it has a lot to do with why I, you know, I I try to support the 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 folks at Movember. Um, and you know, honestly, yeah. I, I I sort of I guess two thoughts on that. I mean, one is I don't think we're any good to anybody if we're not passionate. I think we're supposed to keep the light on um, for people, and 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 so you have to do whatever you have to do to keep. Um, you know, to 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 remain able to do that. Um, because nobody mm -hmm. nobody wants a nobody's going to listen to a podcast from somebody who's, you know, who's disillusioned or, or absent or, you know, whatever, uh, describes their existential condition at that moment. So, so, so that, um, and, and the other thing is, I think, it, you know, I, I would be reluctant to mention this, except that everybody mentions it, including many of the people that I've interviewed, that writing has this therapeutic benefit. It's a subject that I've, um, you know, that I've uh, tried to probe a couple of times, you know, on episodes and even even the the anticipation of it. I'm going to tell you um, a brief story. So I get a lot of emails from listeners, especially during the pandemic. Um, you know, it's a little little less now, but, um, you know, they were nearly daily events. And early on, I got an email from uh, a man who was in a hotel room in Los Angeles trying to go cold turkey on a substance abuse problem that he had. 
mm. and was listening to the, to the podcast. And he listened to the episode about Henry Crewe, the, the the young guy who'd, who'd ridden around the world um, kind of on his own. And there was a strong mental health theme to that story. And he, 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 he wrote me this long note about how, you know, he was really inspired by what, what Henry had done. And, and when he got clean, he was going to, you know, he was going to, going to, going to have an adventure like that and, and, and that looking forward to it was giving him the motivation that he needed and stuff like that. And a few hours later, he, he wrote me again. This time he listened to the, the episode following that, which was Mark Kaspersik, the lead singer of Red Light King, um, you know, mm-hmm. who's just a, an awesome guy. And, and he was like, he had decided it was going to be the Pacific Coast Highway. That was the ride he was going to do. And um, anyway, I don't know how it all turned out um, for him, but I was struck then by how it isn't just riding a motorcycle that is, you know, healing and inspiring, but for a lot of people, it's the idea of it that's healing and inspiring. And so a very long way of saying, you know, I think you're, I think it's really important and admirable that you are trying to protect your love of that because I think it's what people need from you. Yeah, that's a really great way to look at it. And I appreciate that perspective. You know, nobody has said it to me like that before. Um, And I'm going to, when we're done here, I'm going to write that down because that's something I feel like I need to look at again uh, to remind me. Um, And, you know, to, to speak to what you're talking about with, motorcycling being being healing uh one of the things i tell people that you know i i ride often as a way to clear my head and center myself because when you're riding a motorcycle you cannot be distracted you must be to to use a cliche you must be in the moment and i find that for me doing that forces me to focus on the task at hand, which sometimes is literally survival, you know? Um, So that often will, by the time I get home, I find that when I'm, when I'm having a tough day, if I go for a ride, even just to get out for an hour, by the time I get back, I've had a chance to clear my head and I can think about those issues, whatever has come up, positive, negative, whatever, uh, in a in a much clearer way because now I've got that ride down. I've got kind of reinforced that practice of 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 focusing on one thing, and I can now focus on one thing. Um, so it's a it's a it is very clearing for me, very therapeutic to to get out and ride. And sometimes I'll just when I used to I used to live um, inside the Beltway, which is there's a. a a circular highway, roughly circular highway around the district of Columbia. Mm -hmm. And I lived in inside the beltway in Virginia. And if I remember correctly, the beltway is 42 or 45 miles around. Um, And sometimes I would just go ride around the beltway. And when I got to my exit, if I wasn't ready to, if I didn't feel like I was ready, I'd ride around the beltway again. And, you know, it, you wouldn't think, the beltway can be notorious for traffic. I'm not doing this at two o'clock or, or five o'clock in the afternoon. I'm talking about, you know, 11 o'clock at night, two yeah. o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, but it was such a cathartic experience to just get out in in what passed for fresh air in the D.C. area at that time of, of night and literally ride in circles, man. Um, 
you know, it, it, and it seems, I think if you don't ride a motorcycle, that makes absolutely no sense to you. But anybody who rides a motorcycle goes, eh, maybe it's not something I could do, but I absolutely get that. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, a. um, I think it's a kind of high that you have to keep chasing. I mean, sometimes just getting on and going is, you know, sort of all it takes. But, um, uh, you know, a bit like we talked about a minute ago, it's something I want to preserve the ability to do that. I don't want to get so competent and comfortable at this that I'm thinking about anything else. Um, you yeah. know, and that that risk, I guess, happens if you're riding the same roads all the time. Honestly, it's the thing I love about the track. I, I, go, I go once a year. Um, I am no threat to anybody. And, um, I, I, I <laughs> not, not on a 400 CC bike. You're not, <laughs> no, no, but also, you know, talent, courage, um, all that stuff. But man, when you're keeled over in a corner and in your head, you're going fast and you're being flooded, um, you know, with sort of sensory inputs, there is, it is impossible to be more present than that. It's almost animal. And, um, yeah, I really, I mean, those moments are out on the road. Those occurred if I'm almost killed, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but um, otherwise you got to go looking for them. But, but it it really is um, a big part of what makes this amazing. And I think honestly, it sort of goes back to this, um, you know, heroic, the heroic and ordinary people thing is that when I see somebody out riding, you know, who isn't, um, you know, who doesn't conform to some stereotype that makes it easy to, um, you know, to kind of categorize them. That's what I always think is that they, you know, they, they fought to get where they are and they're having a great day and, um, they're having a great day because they're, they've connected with themselves again. Um, I got a lot of mail about the Buddhist monk. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Oh yeah. That was a fantastic episode. And, uh, as somebody who, I consider myself an an amateur studier of Zen Buddhism um, rather than a committed one like a monk would be Uh, that out of all of the episodes, that's probably my favorite one. Um, It's the one that I that I keep on my phone and have listened to more than once, Um, you know, and, and that was just such a like when he was talking, I, I really felt a connection with with that specific guest um and and just because he he's he wasn't just speaking a language that i understood he was uh he was saying things that really kind of expose the core of why we ride and and when yep Yep, that's well put. Um, he, I, I, I just loved him. He has his own podcast, actually, which are basically, um, you know, redistributed talks that he gives around um, where he lives in Los Angeles. But there was one line in that episode which I had a few people write to me afterwards, where he describes the feeling of, um, of, of kind of being out there and back on a bike. As and he says, "Welcome to the universe," or "Welcome back to the universe." I think he puts yeah. it that way. And I'm like, "Oh man!" So I'm a sucker for that kind of romantic stuff. But you know what? That really kind of is what's happening here. These are these are primitive. These are the you know centrifugal force. Th- these are the forces that created the universe. <laughs> you you know the average. You you know, oh, absolutely. working schmuck, you know, has has no simpler or more accessible way to kind of get in touch with those basic truths. 
um, or at least so it seems to me. Maybe there are pilots and and sailors who would feel the same way about what they do. But um, no, I, I, I thought he was wonderful. And um, we're going to Los Angeles in a couple of weeks, and I'm hoping to, to connect with him actually and just shake his hand or whatever it is they do. He was oh, that, cool. that would be fantastic. Yeah, he, he's a he's a Western Buddhist. He'll shake your hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, um, you know, when you were just talking, it reminded me of, of two things. Um, I, I don't know if you're a, a Lord of the Rings fan um, or, you know, uh, a devotee. Uh, I'm a casual fan, but there's a, a passage that has uh, always stuck with me from um, I think it's the return of the king. I, I'm I'm sure somebody listening would know for sure. But um, Sam and Frodo are deep in enemy territory, trying to get a little bit of rest. And uh, Sam is just uh, despondent. He feels like they're going to fail. They're going to die. They're going to, you know, it's going to be worse than that. Uh, and he looks up into the sky and he sees a single star. And he realizes in that moment that even through the depths of the gloom of Mordor, the light of a star can give somebody hope. Yeah. Uh, and and anytime I, I'm reminded of that passage, I, I'm reminded of the, the first time I rode across the country on my way back, I was going across Oklahoma, which... No offense to anybody that lives in Oklahoma. If you don't have to ride all the way across Oklahoma, don't do it. Um, but it was miserable hot. Uh, I had been rained on for four, maybe five days in a row. Um, and no no rain gear to speak of. I had, you know, garbage bags and and no longer waterproof boots. It was just miserable. And it's 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. It finally stopped raining about six hours earlier, um, and I'm riding across Oklahoma, and the, and the clouds start to part. And in the space of about 15 minutes, I go from complete, you know, black overcast, no light at all, to just a sky full of stars and the moon on the horizon. And it was, it was one of those moments I'll never forget, and it, it gave me such hope to be doing what I was doing and going where I was going. And, you know, for the next several hours until I decided to, to knock it off for the night, uh, it didn't matter that I was wet. It didn't matter that I was lonely. It didn't matter that I was, you know, struggling because I had that sky and it was just such a, a hopeful, beautiful thing to experience. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things people don't people who don't ride don't understand that. And I don't mean to separate us from from people who, who have never ridden, but it's it's not the same experience when you're traveling in a car or a, or a truck or an SUV or a Volkswagen bus. Even you you see the same stars, but you don't experience them the same way as when you're you're riding a motorcycle. And I think it gives us those of us who do ride a little bit of uh, a, a perspective advantage, you know, especially yeah. if you're soaking wet when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a little hallucinatory <laughs> dimension to the thing. I, I think that's, I mean, I, the, you know, 
the things I have seen on a bike, and I think that's true of everyone who rides. And, you know, if someone who doesn't ride um, says, how was your ride? You're kind of left to say, oh, it was great. Thanks for asking. But you can't possibly explain, you know, that sunset or that hawk or that, you know, that valley or that cloud formation. You just, because you, it isn't just a question of being there. It's a question of being there doing that thing when it happens that makes it yeah. you know, kind of magic. And, um, you know, earlier we talked about people being sort of suddenly filled with the poetry of doing this after they've kind of mastered it. And I think those are the kinds of moments that, um, that I'm talking about at least is, is when you, you know, you suddenly, and I, I listen to music when I ride a lot, so that makes it a little more cinematic even. And, um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's true. And I, and I think it's, I mean, you being a lifelong rider, it's, it's exciting to me that you can still feel that way that it's not blunted by time and experience. Yeah. And, you know, even sometimes it takes a little effort, but um, I, I really strive for that. It's, 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 it's the reason I ride, you know, it's still, I don't, I hate to say this, you know, like this, but at my age, cause I'm really not that old. Um, I'm in my early fifties. Um, I, I don't, outside of my job, I don't do anything that isn't fun, you know, and, and motorcycles are my job, but they stay fun because of the the things that I still love to do. Um, you know, I, I, I quit playing in bands for probably close to maybe even almost 10 years, uh, simply because it stopped being fun. Mm. And, uh, you know, a, a, a friend, a former bandmate of mine convinced me to get back into it. And, uh, I do it, I do it on my terms and, you know, if I do pass up on some of our shows because, you know, it's, it's not a place that I, I don't want to drive there. I don't want to play that particular dive bar on a Wednesday night. Um, it sounds selfish, but it's how I keep it fun, Yeah, you know, and, and the important thing there is they understand and we've talked about it. It's not just like a screw you. I'm not showing up kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so it, yeah. I try to, I try to surround myself with fun things because life pops up every now and then, and you have to do something that isn't fun. So you, you look forward to the times that are fun so you can get back into that and really enjoy all of the things, all of the opportunities that we have in front of us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Bruce, let me ask you uh, a question and, and this is kind of a, a, a podcasting technical question. Um, and I'm especially curious because you, you said earlier that you, you typically, um, have your questions more or less planned out. Um, so for you, you kind of know when you're approaching the end of the interview, but for somebody like me who kind of wings it almost every time, I often struggle with knowing how to wrap up and knowing when the the conversation has reached a point of a kind of critical density where if we keep going, people are going to start tuning out. I've heard enough of these people. Um, 
So how do you feel like you know when it's time to wrap up a discussion? Mm. Not that I'm trying to get out of here. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm not saying I could talk to you all night, man, because uh, I'm really enjoying this. But that's a that's something that I, I've always been curious about with uh, with people who who do this thing that we do. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm going, well, we're we're, we're closing in on two, on two hours, um, and you know, ninety minutes to two hours is sort of that's as long as you dare before people, other than the hardest core fans, you know, just kind of give up on you. But the answer for me is in the question that you asked. So, so I try to. Um, this is going to sound self-congratulatory. I don't mean it to. Um, but I, I try to arrange the questions so that there's a narrative arc. Um, so, you know, it, it, the, 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 the interview should end up being kind of like a ride with a, with a beginning, a middle and an end. And so all yeah. the beginning is kind of like warm up stuff and icebreaker stuff and, and, um, you know, things like your origin story. And then if there's a deep theme that'll happen in the, in the, you know, kind of in the middle when everybody's warmed up and the guest feels comfortable and, 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 you know, safe, um, but then I'll I'll start dragging it in a lighter direction, you know, towards the end, um, you know, asking about bikes or, or you know, what have you got planned for this year or you know whatever, and so that so that you can feel it starting to end before it ends. I have no idea how we're going to end this one, Wes, actually, because <laughs> because I didn't have any questions. <laughs> but um, <laughs> normally, see, I got you. That's normally, how I got you, man. <laughs> you did, you did. Well, I can just turn the reins over to you, and you can figure out how to end it. But. Um, <laughs> That, that's that's sort of you know and, and I mean I appreciate that makes me a bit of a control freak, but that comes from a place of just not having that the confidence that, that we talked about earlier um, that I can wing it and so you know so that's what works. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And you know, one of the things that I like to um, lean on as uh, as a closer, where you might have a question that is a, a solid closer, um, I try to I try to wait for a place in the conversation where I can ask what's next. I might ask something like, you know, Bruce, you're, you've hit 50 episodes of this motorcycle life. It's a tremendous achievement in the world of podcasting where, you know, most podcasts exist for only a handful of episodes. Um, and the thought and the effort that you put into every episode is uh, impressive and perhaps even a little intimidating so what's next for this motorcycle life? What are you going to do to inspire yourself to continue with this motorcycle life? Mm, yeah. Um, I think it comes down to um, as long as I keep stumbling across stories. I mean, I, I've created a format that's a lot of work, and I have given myself the additional burden of, of only wanting to work on one episode at a time. So, you know, that's kind of why the the the, the lag is so long from one to the next. Um, but as long as as long as there's a story that you know that kind of needs to be told, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing it. Um, and and I'm. And I don't want to lose enthusiasm for it. So I I think I'm just going to keep going until I feel like the energy, you know, is going out of the thing. And I suppose I'll see that in the numbers. I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I think I, I think that's a great approach, uh, you know, and I want to encourage everybody 
who is out there listening to uh, find out more about This Motorcycle Life. It's very easy to do. You go to thismotorcyclelife.com and you can uh, listen to every episode of the show right there in a web browser window. You don't need a special player. You don't need any special technology. You don't have to subscribe if you don't want to, although you should, because that's how you get the episodes the fastest right on your phone, uh, computer, or device. And you can listen to them uh, in your car, on your buds, whatever you want to do. And, uh, you know, Bruce, I want to thank you very much for inviting me into this Motorcycle Life's circle of riders and listeners. And uh, I just cannot express my joy at being able to participate in an episode of the show. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you, um, you know, for, as I said earlier, for, for making the time and for being so enthusiastic about it. That, um, that, <laughs> that helped me a lot. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing this conversation back and hopefully there won't be too many cringy moments on my part, but um, it's been a blast talking to you. And as you say, I, I could have kept going for another hour. I just don't think that's going to be a public service. <laughs> um, so, so thank you. Yeah, and and right back at you, man. And that's how you wrap up an episode. Well done. (laughs) Well done. of seven-year-old Wes Fleming peering out the window at a single headlight on the Autobahn and staring as a phantom in black leather flashed by is maybe the most vivid motorcycling origin story I've ever heard, and I loved it. I also love that Wes wants to be that phantom for some future kid in the backseat of their parents' car, impatiently waiting for life to happen. That's how this thing that we do is going to stay alive, by People like Wes putting this symbol of liberation in front of anyone who needs to see that it's possible. And in the simplest terms, I guess that's the answer to the question I posed at the top of this episode. Motorcycling's creators mostly do it to give form to that feeling, to express the almost inexpressible for those of us who share it, and to promise something close to magic for those who haven't yet. But reflecting on this, I realized that maybe the most important thing about Wes's Autobahn Phantom was how unselfconscious they were about their impact. That anonymous rider didn't write a poem. They were the poem. They didn't paint or photograph a fleeting image. They were that image, that movie, that song, maybe that podcast. The real inspiration, riders like Wes and riders like you, is out there on the road every day chasing the horizon, as Wes might put it. And so, in honor of this 50th episode, thank you for that. Thank you for the stories. And thank you for listening. You'll find show notes for this episode at thismotorcyclelife.com. That's also how you can reach me if you have questions, comments, or suggestions. If you want to share your own origin story, post it to the comments in this episode's show notes. This motorcycle life at gmail.com works too. You'll also find me lurking on Instagram, where I'm at this moto life, and where you can find many of the people I've interviewed for this podcast, including Wes Fleming. This episode's playlist recommendation marks the fourth time a guest of this podcast has provided their own music. I don't know what it is about motorcycles and guitars, but this track will give you no reason to doubt they go together. 
With Wes Fleming on guitar, the band is 7th Grade Girl Fight, and the track is a little closer. Buy it or stream it wherever you like to get your music. And in the meantime, keep staying alive out there.